So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn, turn to 1 Timothy. Oh, I forgot to say, if you've got preschoolers, um, it's time for the wrigglers to be going out. So if, uh, if you've got uh, preschoolers, head out through the grey doors, look for someone in a green t-shirt and uh, they will point you in the right direction. That's great. This morning we're going to be looking at the subject of money and eternity. Yeah, it went down well, didn't it? Maybe you're all too tired and weary with the heat to even boo. I expected expected a bit more of a response to that. So this morning we're going to be looking at the subject of money and eternity. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. I'm pleased. We're definitely going to need a bit of that because in this heat I may fall asleep up here and that wouldn't be a good thing. So... uh, This is um, the second to last preach in the series in 1 Timothy. We've been working our way through it um, throughout the year. So next week, Santino will be finishing off the series. We'll then be going and we're going to be looking um, and doing a mini-series in Jonah. So looking at Jonah and his mission to Nineveh and being swallowed by a big fish and all of that sort of stuff. So we're going to do a mini-series in the autumn in the book of Jonah. Now, the Gospel is sometimes described in the Bible like the imperishable seed, an imperishable seed. Once planted, even if the ground isn't necessarily good at the time, it it just sits there. Maybe it's a conversation with a neighbour, maybe uh, someone came to a meeting, a church meeting, and heard something about Jesus, and it's like the imperishable seed, it gets planted, and it may spring to life immediately, or it may take many years, but it is powerful and effective to bring about change in people's lives. And in the first half of 1 Timothy, Paul describes more about the gospel and the impact it's had on our lives. In the second half of Timothy, he looks at some of the practical outworkings of it. So last week we looked at how the church is to care for widows and for those in need. We've looked at the role of elders. We've looked at pastoral deacons. We've, we've covered a whole range of practical subjects. But if we don't understand that that is an outworking of the change that has already taken place when you accepted Christ, you may go awry. You may miss the target. You may think that it's somehow a change that I bring about in my own life with a bit of effort, or if if I'm particularly diligent, or well, if those Olympic athletes can do that sort of training, maybe I can put myself to do a bit of training and and self-help and change myself. But it isn't like that at all. It's a fruitfulness that comes from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. It's not something that we can do on our own, but it is a free gift from him. All of mercy and grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we keep in step with what God is doing in our lives. And I want to say that, and I said it last week, and I often say it, because I think what I don't want is, if you've just turned up for the first time, I don't want you to think that what we're preaching this morning is improved life, or a bit of changed thinking. No, it is earthed, completely earthed in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen, church? Yeah? Without him, we've got nothing. Without him, we might as well go home, even if you like the coffee and the danishes, it really isn't worth turning up just for those. It's about coming and worshipping him, connecting with him and growing in God. Amen? That's just by way of introduction anyway. Before I go any further, I just want to share a bit of family news. As you can tell, the heat is obviously getting to my mind as I'm doing things all in the wrong order. I've got some great family news and I've got some sad family news. Many of you will know Mickey. She's been in the church for many, many years and it is my delight to let you all know that Mickey is getting married in September. She's absolutely cracking. 
She's getting married to Derek, who's um, committed part of St. Helens, um, just down the road. And Mickey and Derek, are you here? Because we'd love to give you a round of applause. Let's give them a round of applause. We are, we are absolutely thrilled for you both. It is really, really good. And we've also got sad news to share. Um, some of you will know Barbara Jeffries. Um, she has been part of the church for many, many years, but hasn't been for a good number of years because of ill health. Um, she passed away uh, just over a week ago after prolonged illness. And uh, her, the service will be held at a crematorium um, tomorrow at 11am. If any of you uh, knew her, or I know some of you did know her and would like to know more details um, about the service. If you head to the information desk, they can let you know. Lord, I want to thank you for your goodness and your grace. I want to thank you that we're part of a family. And in a family we have really good news, like Mickey and Derek, but we also have sadder news when, when those we love go to be with you. Lord, and... Uh, I just ask for grace and mercy and peace at this time, particularly for Barbara's family. I ask as well, Lord, that as I preach this morning, will you uh, give a supernatural Holy Spirit-inspired ability to hear your word and to receive it. We ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're looking at money and eternity. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. A nice positive start. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now we're going to jump down a few verses to verse 17. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. These are very provoking words. What I realised this morning was trying to communicate some of the stuff here is a bit like trying to communicate to an Eskimo what the Sahara Desert is like. To say to us 
as a people that if we've got food and clothing and that's it, we can be content. It's quite a hard thing for us to grasp because I would have thought there are very few here that are actually living with that reality. Most of us are much better off than that. It's a hard thing to understand. But actually, what Paul says is that it is possible to be content with very little. It is possible to have not very much, mix it with godliness, God-focusedness, and we can be content with these things. Now we're going to look at this passage under four sections. The first one we're going to look at, the first heading, is contentment and eternity. And Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. No fridges, no freezers, no TVs, computers, holidays, flash cars, not even the essential iPad, and you can still be content with life. I want to say that again, and you might think, oh, Paul's obviously struggling to know what to say. You can be content with only food, clothing and shelter. You don't need anything more than that. Now don't worry about what I'm going to cover all the ground a little bit later, but I want to say that again. Because we live in an age and in a society that pumps at us time after time after time that contentment is based on the number of possessions that I have. Contentment is based on consuming something. Actually, if you watch the TV, if you watch the BBC News, they actually call us consumers. When they, they don't talk about us as human beings, they talk about us as consumers. These, these products, these things that just consume stuff. And so many of us, and, and all of us probably at one time or another, get caught up in the trap of thinking that my contentment is based on my next purchase. Or my contentment is based on the next thing that I may have or own or the next thing I may achieve. And, and what Paul is saying here is, that is not true. Our contentment is not based on those things. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But if we have food and clothing, we can be content with that. You do not need more stuff to be happy. Amen? And I think it's such an important thing to hear. We can look at that and just rush on. Paul says you can be content in life even if you only have the basic essentials for living. Now Paul is not talking about those who are destitute. He's not talking about those that don't have food, clothing or shelter. He's not saying, actually, if you're going to bed hungry, oh, you can be content with that as though, as though that's possible. No, no, he's not saying that. What he's saying is if you've got the basics, you can be content with that. Nor is he putting on a max, nor is he putting a maximum limit for believers either. He's not saying here that food, clothing and shelter is the maximum permitted for a believer. What he's saying is it's the minimum for contentment. Do you see that? Because I think people have mistaught out of these verses that actually if you're a Christian you really shouldn't have anything at all. We should sell up, all live in a big house together and none of us should have any money. That, that isn't taught anywhere in the Bible, that isn't the case. No, it's, t- it's a minimum 
for contentment. But how does this contentment thing work? If, how is it? Because if, if we were probably honest and I was asked you to put your hands up, most of you would say maybe that you, you are linking your contentment with the things you own or, or that sort of stuff. Well, how does this contentment thing work? Well, it starts firstly by viewing your life in the context of eternity. If you want to understand this thing, and if you want to be out of graph how contentment works, you need to view your life in the context of eternity. You need to see the big picture. You need, as it were, your vision cleared. When you arrived on this earth, you had nothing. You didn't come out driving a Ferrari. You didn't come out fully clothed. You didn't come out with two gold bars. And your mum is probably quite pleased that that is the case. You came out naked. And what Paul says is when you die, you leave this earth naked as well. You cannot take any of it with you. Job says in 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. So if you want to get how this contentment thing in this present world works, the first thing we need to understand is that we came with nothing and we are going to leave with nothing. One writer said, our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two points of nakedness. I will let you consider that for a moment. A church minister at a rich woman's funeral was once asked, how much did she leave? He replied, she left everything. She left everything. She could take nothing with her. We all live life with blurred vision. Often we're looking too short term. It might be, and if you're a fool, don't mean to, uh, don't, you know, don't mean to insult you, but I'm just about to. If you're living just for today, you're a fool. If you're living for today and tomorrow, you're slightly less foolish, at least you've got your eye over the next 24 hours. Some of you may be living as well maybe for next month, thinking about what's going on next month. Some of you may have a longer term view and you're thinking maybe the next few years. And the very wise among you will be thinking about retirement as well. What will I have put aside for my retirement? But the thing is, in whichever context, wherever you fit in these things, you're still thinking too short term. Because this life is only a momentary pilgrimage. What lies beyond is eternity. And if you're only living for your retirement, you're going to mess it up. You may have a nice house, you may have a walloping great pension and do all these nice holidays and things like that, but you've forgotten you cannot take any of it with you. You don't know how long you're going to last And you can't take it with you. So what we need to do is to make sure we're investing into eternity. We need to make sure we send things on ahead, as it were. But we'll get on to that in a little while. Jesus says this, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Clearly there are more more types of greed than one. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life does not consist with how much stuff you have accumulated. And if you want to start changing how you think about this, you need to view your life in the context of eternity. 
that you have a wonderful salvation that you're going to taste here on earth, but you're going to taste fully after you've died. For Barbara, she's not sad. She's with God. No more pain, no more illness, no more sickness. She's with her loving Father in glory. None of the troubles of this world will trouble her again. She's, she's with him. Are we preparing for eternity? In Philippians chapter 4, another letter that Paul wrote, he says this, this is his personal testimony, verses 12 and 13. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul's contentment was not based on external circumstances. Paul had learned the secret of being content and he found it in Christ. It says the secret there in those last, that last verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So firstly we need to understand that our life here on earth is just a moment in eternity. The second thing we need to understand is that I need God's power and God's help as much in the difficulties of everyday life and in need and in want as I do when I'm praying for the sick when I'm sharing my faith with someone that doesn't know God, when maybe I'm prophesying in a community group, I need God's Holy Spirit and God's power as much in my need for contentment as I do in those other things as well. And actually, if you look slightly earlier in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, look, I actually, I compare the things of this world as absolute rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And actually for Paul, where was his contentment based? It was based in his relationship with Jesus Christ. It was based in his knowledge of Christ and in his walk with Christ and in a knowledge of also knowing that even the sufferings he was facing and in Philippians he was in prison at the time, even in those sufferings he knew they were just momentary in comparison to what was coming at the other side of death. And I think one of the challenges we face in our society is we do have so much stuff and stuff isn't evil or wrong but we just have so much stuff that we live much more for this world than probably we should. Because it's just temporary, it's just we're on a pilgrimage on the way through. Paul says godliness with contentment. God would focus with contentment is great gain. The second point, impaled on greed. Let me read verses 9 and 10 because I think they're quite hard-hitting. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. This is very descriptive language. This is um, very hard-hitting. If you want to get rich... 
you are open to increased temptation and the trap of the enemy. If that is a goal in your life, you are opening yourself up to greater temptation. You're opening yourself up to foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. John Stott says, ruin in this life, destruction in hell. Which is pretty hard hitting, isn't it? But, but greed is a destructive thing that may taste nice at the start, but it rots your insides, and over time it will cause you to do things that you would never have considered doing at the beginning. Morals will be put to one side, thought for other people will be put to one side. Why? Because you are captivated, you, you love this thing, and you will do whatever it takes to try to get it. A greedy person will never have enough money and they are open to sacrificing duty and conscience in the pursuit of wealth. They want to get rich at any cost. And obviously, Bo, I'm not saying, you're like that, you're like this animal ripping to try and gain that, but I think, (laughs) not at all, but, but I think actually all of us are open to the subtleties of greed of wanting a bit more, of feeling that we'd be content if we just have a little bit more. I think if we're honest, most of us would say, I'm, I'm open to that temptation, and we need to guard against it. Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. First thing, it isn't money itself, money is neutral. But it's loving money rather than loving God that is a problem. And it isn't the root of every evil, it is a root of all kinds of different types of evil. It's just worth worth clarifying that because um, often other things are said. When he talks about greed, I think it's as much about accumulating possessions as it is accumulating money. And again, just to say this, look, it's so short-sighted you find you've chased something all your life that doesn't satisfy, that hurts other people, and when you get to the end of your life, you realise you cannot take it with you. It was a chasing after the wind. You will hand it on to someone else. How do I know if I'm greedy? Because I'm sure, again, if I should put your hands up, I don't think there'd be many takers. But, but we often see greed expressed, don't we, in the media? Maybe some high-flying someone or other that, that just got a bit greedy, or whether it's MPs with expenses, and you think, how on earth could they ever have fallen into that trap? I think, in reality, probably all of us are open to it. We just need to guard our hearts. It was one thing that followed the next, that followed the next, and before they knew it, what they were doing was absolutely ridiculous and daft. But actually, whether it's footballers or whether it's star... Do you know what I mean? We we see it so frequently, but none of us are immune to it. Then verses 11 and 12, running from greed. Paul charges Timothy to run away from greed and to pursue God with the same energy. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And in the end, this is a faith battle. It very much is a faith battle because the first thing you've got to make a decision on this morning is, do you believe what the Bible teaches? 
Because if, you, if, if, you're, if you're battling in your mind, is what Paul is saying true or is it really just a load of waffle? You know, he needed to finish, fill a half-hour slot on an August Sunday morning. He picked this subject. I, you know, I believe something else. My truth is just as valid as this truth that's being communicated here. The first thing you've got to decide is what is, what being, is being taught this morning the truth. It is a faith battle. Do you believe that when you die, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to spend an eternity with him? See, now, if you believe that and you start following the logic through, do you believe that you came out naked? Good. We're we're good. I don't really want to go biology, biology lessons and photos. You did. You came out naked. And when you die, do you think you're an Egyptian pharaoh and you're going to go with all your gold and jewels and chariots and, and... that's what they believed. They, they hoped they could take it all with them. They couldn't. It's still all there and they're dead. You can't. So if you get to that point, it's a faith battle then, that you make your everyday decisions based on what the Bible is saying. Therefore, I will not pursue wealth and greed. Why? Because I'm going to pursue something much, much better. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And what Paul says is, look, flee from money and pursue some things in the opposite direction. The first thing he says to pursue is, pursue righteousness. Maybe he's talking here about justice and fair dealing with people. Don't be greedy. No, no, I'm going to be righteous in my dealings with people. Pursue godliness. Have the right object for your worship. What is it that you're worshipping? What is it you're spending your time thinking about? What is it you give your time to? Is it God and being rich in God? Or is it other things? Pursue faith. Be faithful and be men and women of integrity. Pursue love. Love love of sacrifice and love of service. Uh, Pursue endurance. Be patient in difficult circumstances. Don't look for the easy way out. Oh, well, look, things are really difficult at the moment, so I'm going to make this unrighteous decision, but God understands it's tough. No! That's the very time we cling on to God and we hold on in faith and say, no, God, we believe there's a good answer here. I will not pick an unright- make an unrighteous decision because circumstances are difficult. I'm following you. I'm loving you. I believe you're going to find a way through for me. Pursue gentleness. I'm going to be patient with people because ultimately people are a whole load more important than money. Amen? People are a lot more important than money. And then Paul finishes with a word for the rich. Now many of you may be sat here thinking, ah yes, he's rich over there, I hope he's listening. Again, pretty much, is that rain? Shame we haven't got sort of slide back roof because I'd quite fancy a little bit of rain on the inside at the moment. A word for the rich. Which, if you're not certain if it applies to you, it applies to you. Okay? Firstly, and I've mentioned it already, but I do want to emphasise this, Paul doesn't tell the rich to give everything away. The first thing he says isn't just sell everything and give it all away. He doesn't say that at all. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, which is the story of the early church, what you find there is amazing generosity. What you find is uh, 
people who are in need being supported and cared for. What you find at times is men and women who have got, who are rich, who have got property, who have got money, selling pieces of property or, or buildings in order to provide for those in the church who haven't got much. So you find outstanding and amazing generosity, but not, but people don't give everything away. It's not that they sell up and give everything away. So if God has blessed you here with more money and with more property or you're involved in business, that is absolutely brilliant. What I'm talking about here is where is your heart, not about how much you've got. Because you can have absolutely nothing and still be very, very greedy. It's about your heart and putting God first. And in actual fact, if you look in Proverbs 13.22, it talks about that it's good for us to leave an inheritance for our children and our grandchildren. So it's good to save up. It's good to be diligent with these things and diligent with money. So those things are good. And I do want to emphasise that. I want God to send people who are rich in money to this church. Businessmen. Businesswomen. People who know how to make money. Because this town is in dire need of men and women just like that. Who can provide employment. Who are good at enterprise. Who can help, help raise the poverty level in this town. Don't you agree? We need men and women with skills and substance and all of that. That is so very, very important. Because that's involved in the gospel coming as well. Not just word, but indeed as well. But Paul mentions a couple of dangers of being wealthy and he mentions a couple of duties for the wealthy. The first one is this. The first danger is, he says, look, don't be arrogant. If God has blessed you with more, don't be arrogant with that stuff. Because in the end, the reason that you are wealthy is because God's blessed you. He has. So don't, don't be arrogant with it. Second thing he says is don't put your hope in wealth. Again, only need to look, watch the news over the last two years. Eurozone crisis, the, uh, the banks, um, stock market. To be honest... Don't put your hope in wealth, in your employer, that sort of stuff. All of that is shakeable. There's only one we put our hope in, and that's God. And this, I, th- I love these words. He says, we hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I didn't read that very well, did I? He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy life. He's not promising to make you a millionaire, but he's promising to bless you and look after you and to do you good. And sometimes things will come along you just weren't expecting. And God's just given them to, them to you because he loves you. And he knows material and physical things impact on us as well as spiritual things. It's like, he says, David Clay, I just want to bless you. I'm richly providing this so you can just enjoy life. So we're not to be arrogant, we're not to put our hope in wealth. What are we to do then? What are the duties of being wealthy? The first one he says is, look, be rich in good deeds. Not not just rich in your money, but rich in your good deeds, in your service with the saints. I guess he's saying to the wealthy in the church at Ephesus, model yourself on those widows we were talking about in a few paragraphs earlier who were so very rich in good deeds. 
Give yourself to serving the church. Give, your church. give yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If God's blessed you with a nice house, use it for God's glory. If God's blessed you with a big salary, give loads of money to the church and then be generous on top as well. Do both. Why not double tithe rather than just single? I'll give twice as much away. Why? Because God's blessed me. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, I think it's a good idea anyway. <laughs> and in doing this, you are laying up treasure for yourself in heaven. You cannot take everything with anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. And whether it's in good deeds or whether it's what you do with your wealth and your finance, we can store up for ourselves something that's waiting when we get there. And I find these words really interesting because he says somewhere, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Do you want to do that? Lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What we do of our wealth, our finance, what we do of our time, all of that impacts on what goes on ahead. John Stott says this, the question is perspective and proportion. Which is more valuable, to be rich in this age or in the age to come? Age to come. Is it to accumulate treasure here on earth or in heaven? Is it to make a lot of money now or to take hold of life that is truly life? Perspective and proportion. For me, nothing earths my faith better, well there's a few things, but this is a big one, than how I handle my money. And I've found that over the last 15 years or so, it has never been a stationary position. I think I've made a step forward in faith and then God prompts me again. He never lets me settle. And often it's just that still small voice on the inside, God saying, I think it would be just good if you increased how much you give to the church. Well, you know that gift day coming up, maybe it would be good if you give that much. And I say, how much? Or that situation over there, maybe you could make a difference there. And I find it, it, it challenges my faith, it earths it, it causes me to lean on God, probably in a way that many other areas do not. And I'm sure it's true for you as well. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Matthew chapter 6. Shall we stand? Can I invite the band back up, please? Stewards, can I ask you just to start pouring the uh, juice out into the cups as well? What we're going to do now, church, is we're going to worship Jesus. We're going to close very shortly. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to have the bread and wine. We're going to take it as an opportunity, in a sense, just to re-give ourselves to Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to him. Because in the end, he is the greatest treasure, isn't he? He is the greatest treasure. He's the one that we're living for. He's the one that is all about. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, but, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Lord, we want to say here, Lord, right now, that you are our greatest treasure. And in the end, whether it's the time that we give, or the money in our bank accounts, or even where we've placed our hearts, we say, Lord, we want to give it all to you. We do thank you, Lord, for every good gift you've given. Lord, every house you've provided, every monthly salary that goes in month after month, Lord, we thank you for the possessions and things you've entrusted to us, but we know we can't take any of them with us. That we're only pilgrims, as it were, in this life. And we ask, Lord, whatever it is you've given, would we use it for the extension of your kingdom and for your glory? Lord, you are our treasure. And we say, Lord Jesus, it is all about you. Absolutely all about you. We're going to worship, we're going to freshly focus on Christ, then we're going to take the bread and wine together.